Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, my name is Maurice Selby and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And I just want to welcome you all on this wonderful day, ladies and gentlemen, Um, even though we still are in the midst of this crisis with COVID-19. I think we have a, a real big opportunity here to turn the tide in our fight against this virus. And with that said, this is our fifth COVID vaccine update that I am bringing to you tonight. And uh, before we get into that, I just want to shout out the rest of the Health in Harlem family um, out there. It is going to be just me, ladies and gentlemen, tonight. Uh, So sorry to be a talking head, uh, but the rest of our team, you know, they are uh, with us in spirit and I just wanted to give a shout out to Giorgio Reed, uh, my man, Michael Holmes, uh, also Mia and Anastasia and uh, Ben Suferi uh, out there. And of course, DJ. And yeah, looking forward to getting you guys back on here um, in upcoming weeks. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, let's just get into the topic at hand and um, in a joint statement from the CDC and FDA, Dr. Peter Marks, the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, and Dr. Ann Shuchat, principal direct deputy director of the CDC. Basically, they came out and and said that uh, there seems to be a few cases out there, six out of six point eight million Uh, doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. There are these blood clots, six cases out of 6.8 million. And with this sort of signal uh, that they're seeing through the vaccine adverse event reporting system, uh, they've actually called for halting the administration of Johnson and Johnson COVID vaccines while they sort this out. And so, yes, ladies and gentlemen, uh, indeed, Zora Linnell Selby is here with me, as you can hear her in the background. Uh, but yes, indeed, the CDC and FDA are reviewing data involving these six reported cases. And 
essentially these cases involve a rare and severe uh, blood clot, something called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this was seen in the context of a decreased platelet count, something called thrombocytopenia. And this involved, all six cases involved women between the ages of 18 and 48 years of age. And so with that said, the CDC will convene a meeting of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP, tomorrow, Wednesday, April 14th, to really just further review these cases and to really just look at the significance of these cases and therefore be able to give uh, additional recommendations going forward on whether we're going to continue administering this vaccine, uh, whether there needs to be a continuing halting of the administration of this vaccine, and really um, ultimately, hopefully trying to figure out how to make this as safe as possible and make sure that this is not something uh, that is going to put people at risk. Now, one thing I want to really get at and understand here, right, is that this is an association at this point, right? This is by no means definitive. This does not um, at this point mean a causal link, right? Meaning that the uh, vaccine uh, is definitively known to have caused the clots um, that we saw in these patients. And it is, is rather early before any conclusions can be drawn. That's the first thing. And anyway, I think we need to think about this in the right context. And this is going to be a theme in this particular show uh, today in that I just ask that you put your fear on a back burner, right? Because this sounds very scary. Indeed, it sounds scary uh, to me, but let's just look at the data, right? 6.8 million doses administered, and we've seen up to this point, or at least from what we know, uh, about six cases of this possible complication. And when we contrast that with an estimated one in 1,500 patients getting heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, right? So heparin, a very common uh, blood thinner used to treat many different conditions and even prevent uh, blood clots, but one in 1,500 um, having that complication. One to five per 10,000 having anaphylaxis from penicillin. When we talk about the rate of blood clots developing in birth control users, right? The rate for getting clots is about 0.3 to 1% over 10 years for a woman on the pill. Um, you know, the risk at this point is greater possibly taking birth control. So what I'm saying is, right, and that this is these are calculated risks that we are taking with any medical intervention. That's how we really have to understand this. And so at this point, it is very likely that this is still a safe and effective vaccine. And it is likely, I would imagine, uh, that the FDA probably will say that it is safe to resume administration of this vaccine uh, after that meeting tomorrow. Uh, but yet there's, there's still things that need to be sort of worked out here, right? Uh, but another thing that I think we really need to understand is that we know very well that blood clots, right? That is a one of the major complications of a COVID-19 diagnosis, one of the major potential complications, individuals forming blood clots in their legs, right? Or these what we call deep vein, deep vein thromboses or having pulmonary embolism, a clot that goes to the lungs and 
that can cause shortness of breath, chest pain, um, can even be fatal in the worst cases, right? That is a very well-known complication of COVID-19. And so uh, if this does, right, they do resume with the administration of this vaccine. We have to take that into account when we think about this as a as a potential intervention for ourselves as individuals, for our communities. Um, we have to think about these risks in that way, in that context, right? Which risk are we going to take? COVID-19 uh, versus preventing COVID-19 and taking this six in six million risk of having a cerebral venous thrombosis. And one other thing I would like to really add to that is that this really shows that the vaccine adverse event reporting system um, is actually working in this case. You know, they, they saw a signal of a potential safety issue regarding uh, one of the vaccines. And so it is being investigated, right? This is an effort to make sure that this is as safe as possible for as many people as possible. And who knows, maybe we will learn which populations or which individuals are at increased risk for this complication. And so one thing I want uh, all of us to understand really is that this is business as usual, really, with the FDA and the CDC. This happens not only with vaccine uh, interventions, but also medications, right, that have approval um, and that when there is a safety signal that arises, it is not uncommon for a, a statement such as this to go out where they sort of halt or put out uh, advisories about the medication and then investigate and then give further recommendations after looking at the data, looking at the cases, right? So this is this is business as usual, ladies and gentlemen. And actually in the statement, uh, they actually said it is with an abundance of caution that they decided to say that they would halt the administration of this vaccine because they are taking uh, really everyone's safely, safety very seriously. So. Uh, with that, I say just also just be on the lookout for misinformation and even disinformation out there regarding this, because um, this is something that individuals are going to have a field day with. Right. Talking about um, sort of these blood clots and um, really just going to town, uh, potentially putting out some bad information out there. Just make sure you know where you're getting your information and that what you're uh, reading is true. And also that we are appreciating this um, in a way right, where we are taking all of these things into account. The context is very important here, ladies and gentlemen. And that is our signal to move on. Essentially, Zora telling me I talk too much. You probably hear in the background, uh, ladies and gentlemen, but we will indeed move on.com. Gonna lay out this format tonight uh, for us. Initially, we're gonna talk about some statistics regarding where we are with the vaccination program that has been ramping up here in the US. We are going to also update on safety uh, regarding these vaccines that are currently uh, emergently authorized by the Food and Drug Administration. And also we're going to talk about vaccine hesitancy versus those just strictly against vaccination. We're also going to talk about the long-term risks of COVID-19 infection and also going to talk about the importance of really just staying vigilant, even though we are making a big strides in terms of dealing with this crisis as a whole. And so total vaccine doses, at least one dose administered here in the United States, 112,046,611 individuals. Um, and we have out of that 
2,123 that are fully vaccinated. And respectively, that is 33.7% uh, that has had at least one dose versus 19.9% uh, of individuals in this country that have been fully vaccinated. So we're approaching 20% fully vaccinated uh, in this country. And with that said, um, especially when we look at some of the more vulnerable populations, so we see even higher uh, rates of vaccination. Uh, if we look at the percentage of the population uh, greater than 65 years of age, we are approaching an 80% range, right? As far as individuals that have received their first dose and about 60% of those individuals age 65 or older that have gotten fully vaccinated. And we're seeing hospitalization rates for that group fall significantly. Um, I think everybody is aware that nursing homes, right? Having been the hardest among the hardest hit um, at the outset of this crisis, of this outbreak, they have actually been uh, among the groups that we see the largest fall in rates of hospitalization and deaths from COVID-19. And the, the experts out there are saying that this, a lot of this is attributed to the vaccine, to the vaccination program. And so definitely some, you know, encouraging signs that we're seeing regarding this vaccine. And ladies and gentlemen, we still got a long ways to go, right? That's only 20% of the population. And that's why it's really important that we just focus on talking about uh, not only the vaccine itself, but also how we all think about this intervention uh, in our country and really throughout the world, because we're not the only country uh, struggling with this, right? Making these decisions and, and sort of um, engaging this intervention. And so with that says, said, um, I want to turn to the safety because that's the next big thing uh, that is really um, out there as far as the concerns. I think when we look at the efficacy and we've talked about those uh, in previous previous shows, talked about those numbers, right? That 95% efficacy or effectiveness. We talked about um, those extraordinary rates of success where, you know, out of uh 162 or 170 cases of COVID, right, in the Pfizer-BioNTech trials, those phase three trials, um, out of that that extraordinary number of cases, there were only a handful of COVID-19 cases in the group that was vaccinated versus what we saw in the control group. Um, and when it came to severe COVID-19, um, out of the 10 individuals in that study that were diagnosed with severe COVID, so these are the individuals with hypoxia or low uh, blood oxygen content. These are the individuals that have the complications that we see um, ranging from heart related complications to obviously some of the lung damage that can be done to all the other host of complications we see from COVID. Um, severe COVID at that. Uh, out of those 10 individuals in that trial, nine were in the control group. So that's the group that did not get the vaccine. They just received the placebo shot of normal saline and only one out of the group that was vaccinated. Um, and so that's where those extraordinary numbers come from, that 95 percent efficacy um, in that study. And we saw a similar results when we looked at the Moderna trials um, and also encouraging results uh, looking at the Johnson and Johnson slash Janssen uh, vaccine product. Um, you know, levels of efficacy approaching uh, 70%. Uh, 
And so with that said, right, the efficacy um, or how well that these vaccines can reduce one acquiring the SARS-CoV-2 infection and therefore COVID-19, um, and especially when we talk about individuals having severe complications from this disease, we see that the vaccines are very, very effective. Um, and again, looking at those hospitalization rates, um, especially in the groups that have larger proportions of those populations vaccinated, we see those hospitalizations and death rates falling. And so these vaccines are effective. Um, that's one thing we can say with confidence at this point. Now, looking at the safety to date, the vaccine adverse event reporting system has not detected patterns in cause of death that would indicate major safety problems with these COVID-19 vaccines. Um, all three of the vaccines that currently have emergency use authorization by the FDA um, in tracking and monitoring for adverse events, right? Uh, so these are those severe allergic reactions, the anaphylaxis um, that has been prominently featured in our news media. Uh, this also includes more complex, um, a lot of other immune mediated reactions um, and some of them being significant, right? Even um, potentially leading to death, as we've seen with uh, vaccines, right? Some of the more traditional vaccines. Uh, out there, there really have, have has not been any uh, definitive link or any deaths um, that have been detected that um, where it's been established that the vaccine caused that. Um, so the FDA, as well as the CDC, via the Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment Project, they're also continuing to monitor the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines as well. And again, no findings that indicate uh, severe safety concerns when it comes to these three authorized vaccines. And let's just talk about anaphylaxis, right? This severe allergic reaction, because that is the thing um, that I think we've heard most about um, around us when it comes to complications uh, from the vaccines. And anaphylaxis in general is rare. Uh, but when it comes to these vaccines, it is actually very rare. And according to the CDC, between two to five people per million vaccinated. Um, and this is according to the vaccine adverse event reporting system. You're going to hear me say that over and over again. This is sort of the body that monitors right adverse events um, attributed to vaccines uh, or at least thought to be attributed to vaccines. They are the ones that's tracking this. And again, two to five per million vaccinated. Um, and if we contrast this with, let's say, penicillin, right? Commonly used antibiotic. People come in even for stuffy noses and uh, likely viral upper respiratory infections. And I'm saying other than COVID, right? So the common cold. Um, yes, we've been overusing these antibiotics. And so, right, penicillin, you come in, you have a cough headache, stuffy nose, and especially pre-COVID, you might have gotten penicillin for your sinusitis um, or for your upper respiratory infection. Hey, even pneumonia, let's say a more concerning infection, right? And so we take that risk, right? Um, as I always said on this program, there's always a risk with any use of medication. I mean, any intervention in medicine, period. And even we talk about alternative therapies, 
there's always somewhat of a risk that we're taking. There's always a risk benefit analysis that is being done either consciously or unconsciously. We're taking risks because all of these things can have potential side effects. And so when we look at penicillin treatment and we look at a diagnosis like anaphylaxis or this severe allergic reaction, right? We said two to five people per million um, vaccinated with the current vaccines that we have available for COVID-19, two to five per million versus for penicillin, right? Approximately one to five per 10,000 cases of penicillin treatment. And so we are talking about a huge difference, right? In the uh, amount of risk that we're taking. And if anything, we can argue that uh, when taking antibiotics and even when looking at other uh, medications, right? Um, any medication, the numbers of severe allergic reactions or anaphylaxis um, can actually be higher um, when we look at uh, some of these other medications that are commonly used and prescribed um, in regular traditional sort of medical practice and in the treatment of many common diseases and ailments. And so not only is this rare, when we talk about anaphylaxis and especially when we talk about it in the, in the content, in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines, this is not only rare, but if it does occur, right, uh, this is very treatable. And so oftentimes within 30 minutes of vaccination, right, this is something that is going to be manifest. This is something that if you are going to have an allergic reaction to uh, vaccine uh, administration is likely going to happen within 30 minutes of that vaccination. Um, it can be up to two hours. And this is something that can be readily treated not only on site um, where you are vaccinated, but also in an emergency setting, emergency setting such as an emergency room. And to date, because of that, to date, there have been no deaths in individuals that have had this unfortunate complication, right? And so in those instances where individuals did have a severe allergic reaction, AKA anaphylaxis, they have been treated um, and treated successfully uh, to the point where they reverse those symptoms and we, we unfortunately have not had an individual uh, that succumbed to this complication. Now, I don't want to trivialize anaphylaxis, but what I am saying is that um, out of all of the potential complications that could arise from vaccination and really from the use of any pharmacologic agent or any medication uh, or any intervention, this is probably among the most treatable um, and we are very good at treating this this entity, uh, these severe allergic reactions. And so again, I don't want to minimize right, the, this complication, but I do want to say that, um, in terms of taking that risk, even for individuals with the history of, of, uh, severe allergic reactions, right. Having this conversation with your medical provider, um, whoever they may be, whether it's a primary care physician, a physician assistant that you see on a regular basis, a nurse practitioner, whomever it is, having this risk benefit conversation with them and seeing if you are a candidate for vaccination. Um, I think that's the best way to go at this time. And so with that said, right, in terms of allergic, severe allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, these vaccines are safe. Um, 
And unfortunately, this is just something that's going to happen. There is just going to be a subset of people that have this unfortunate complication. Uh, but again, it's very treatable and it's also very rare. One to five, uh, two to five per million doses of vaccine administered um, up to this point. And then when we talk about rare, um, even rarer, if that's a word, rarer, um, when we talk about rare, right, other immune mediated reactions. So we're talking about delayed hypersensitivities and other complex immune mediated uh, cutaneous reactions such as Steven Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis. These are, you know, these really um, uh, significant and severe skin manifestations or skin reactions that can take place, um, kind of like a, a burn on a body. Um, this can indeed happen. Um, other things such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, right? Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, long fancy words to indicate that the uh, central nervous system or the nervous system is being affected by immune uh, processes, uh, related to possible vaccine administration. These are things that have happened with other traditional vaccines um, in the past. And when we look at these current vaccines that we have um, emergency youth authorization from the FDA, so the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the uh, Moderna vaccine, and also Johnson & Johnson, uh, to date, there have been no definitive linked right, uh, diagnoses such as these to the vaccines. sort of same weight in terms of validity, right? Validity when it comes to making certain claims or making certain assertions because uh, it's just not a loving playing field, right? When we talk to an infectious disease expert or a, an expert in vaccine development or virology, that is not the same as talking to a, or getting information from a news pundit. Right. It's just there's two different levels of training, levels of expertise where one individual is certainly more likely. Right. The expert is going to give you probably more reliable information that you can use to make decisions uh, on. Another thing is to check and see is the, is this a source that is peer reviewed? Right. So is this something that is agreed upon by multiple credentialed members of the same field? So not only have you taken into account, right, the expertise of this individual, but are other experts in this field in agreement with this person, right? Is this a lone dissenter, right, with the other 99% of experts in that particular field or with the same level of training where they have a differing opinion or a different view, right? Or is this person in the middle of the pack, right? Maybe it's something that is still being sort of debated and it's controversial, um, or is this person right uh, a part of the consensus? Um, and yes, I, I'm aware of groupthink. I am aware of the 
uh, errors that can be made with that. But the instances in history where the lone dissenter or minority right of individuals that disagreed with the consensus uh, opinion or findings, those times in history are few and far between where that was the case. Right. And this is a time where we're in the midst of a national, let's say actually an international emergency where essentially the only thing that we have to guide us at this point is that consensus opinion, right? Is the opinion of experts that have worked, some of them nearly their entire professional life to really be able to make the decisions and the calls at this point that can help guide all of us. And those are the individuals, frankly, that I trust. Uh, I do not really trust the information coming from your local blogger. They just don't have the experience or the credentials to really weigh in at this point on what we're dealing with. Um, And also there are individuals out there that are really putting forth their opinions, right? Which is great. We want to see those uh, out there. We want to hear from those individuals, uh, but there is a good amount of emotion behind it and not the data. I think that's the thing that we really need to focus on is the data before us in making these decisions. And as difficult as it can be to remove that emotional component, or at least to acknowledge that, but then table it and focus on the data, I think that's really what has to happen right now. Uh, Because unfortunately, and I think we all are aware of this, and that fear can cause us to do things uh, and make decisions that might not be in our best interest. And really, right now, the thing that can help us counteract or at least make the best decision possible is really just looking at the data that we have before us and really trying our best to sort of tame or modulate our emotions so that we can make decisions based on the best information that we have before us. All right. And and I'll tell you, I'll be the first person to tell you that there are decisions that I've made in the last 14 months uh, uh, based on my emotions, all right, to a degree. And uh, part of that is is fear, right? Having been through, right, in the thick of the crisis in New York City um, at the onset of this pandemic and just seeing what happened around me to friends, to colleagues, to patients that I've cared for at the bedside and to see that continually happening over the last 14 months. Well, when I, I look at that, right, there's a certain amount of fear that arises in me in, in seeing that happen to additional individuals or family members that I know, right? Uh, friends, to see that possibly happen to colleagues, to even consider that as a possibility for myself, right? And when I thought about that, yes, that inspires a certain level of fear. But then when I look at the vaccine, there's fear with that too, right? There's the fear of, hey, this is something that is new, right? Um, recently created, there could be um, adverse effects that we don't quite fully understand um, at this point. But when I modulate that fear, right, and I put that on the back burner and say, well, let's look at the data 
and really consider the risks, right? We don't know the long-term risks of the vaccines at this point, um, right? So that's something that we could potentially discover in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. However, we do know the potential long-term risks of COVID-19. I've seen those long-term risks of COVID-19. We can start with the long hauler syndrome, right? Which is something that has just gained more attention and prominence around us uh, in the news media. These individuals with prolonged symptoms having had COVID-19 infection and out of that acute phase of the infection, right? Or that initial phase, but they're still having symptoms. It could be breathlessness. It could be fatigue. Some individuals with uh, difficulty concentrating mood disorders, but then we know the other complications of COVID-19 lung damage, right? From the intense inflammatory response that can take place uh, in some of some patients. We know about the cardiovascular manifestations, right? The uh, myocarditis or the inflammation of the heart muscle itself. We know about the damage to blood vessels all throughout the body, causing things like strokes or even heart attacks or additional damage to the heart muscle. We know about the central nervous system effects, um, as we said, with the long haulers and sort of the some of the difficulty that they have um, from even cognitive delays, but also individuals having um, things like encephalitis or uh, inflammation, intense inflammation around the brain. We know of individuals having liver dysfunction, individuals that have had complications like acute renal failure or kidney failure, right? The, the list goes on and on, right? That, those are the real long-term risks of COVID-19. And for myself, when I weighed those risks, right, looking at the vaccine and the um, everything from the adverse effects, right, so that discomfort you might have in your shoulder and the um, headache, fever, chills you might experience, body aches in that short term after the vaccination, which I did have uh, some of those side effects. Um, and even thinking about the possible long term uh, ramifications, but you know, as of six months, we have not seen any signals that that is the case, that there are um, any long term effects at this point. So looking at that data, right, and even that initial phase three clinical trial data that came out in December, which we did talk about um, in past shows. Well, that's the thing. That's right. If I when I put the data on the table before me and I put my fear on the back burner, well, then the decision became very clear to me in that I am going to take the risk of the vaccine versus risking uh, coming down with COVID-19 and suffering the myriad complications that we just mentioned. All right. All right. All right. Now. So um, just as we begin to wrap up, ladies and gentlemen, I am just going to give some fast facts and also try to clear up some myths and misconceptions regarding the three vaccines approved for emergency use by the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States. And so we have three vaccines currently with this emergency use authorization. I'll just get that out there again. We have the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which is recommended for people 16 years and older. It is given in two shots, three weeks apart, so 21 days apart, and uh, you're considered to be fully vaccinated two weeks, so 14 days after the second shot. 
Next, we have Moderna. This is for people 18 years and older. Two shots given four weeks apart. That's 28 days apart from that first shot. Two weeks after your second shot, again, 14 days after the second shot, you are considered to be fully vaccinated. Then we have Johnson & Johnson's uh, Janssen product. This is for people 18 years and older. It is one shot and you are considered to be fully vaccinated two weeks after that one shot. And that is the one difference with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine compared to the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. And it also works by a different mechanism. Now, when it comes to some myths out there and misconceptions, uh, one of them chiefly being that these vaccines, by administering them, individuals are coming down or being given COVID-19. That is flatly false, ladies and gentlemen, totally false. And if anything, the purpose of vaccination is to do the complete opposite, to prevent you from acquiring COVID-19. And with that said, right, a lot of the side effects um, I know are uh, pretty understood, right? They could be pretty bad. I, I communicate again myself having had the chills and even fevers at times, night sweats. Um, I had COVID last year in the spring and to a degree <laughs> wasn't as bad, but definitely felt like some of those same symptoms. However, right. Um, it is essentially going through those side effects where essentially your immune system, um, you can think of it as your immune system working to develop that immunity, that antibody response that'll prevent you from having COVID-19, the actual diagnosis COVID-19. And also with that said, by preventing that disease, we also prevent all of those complications that we spoke of earlier regarding COVID-19 infection. And I will add to that, that these vaccines are extraordinarily effective in preventing COVID-19. And this is something that has been replicated, right? From that initial uh, phase three trial data that we saw come out in December for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in particular um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, this has been replicated outside of those trials, right? And one of the uh, big studies really, or exciting studies to me, was they actually looked at um, SARS CoV-2 infection after vaccination in healthcare workers in California. Uh, this was an article that came out recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, essentially confirming that efficacy that we saw, right, in excess of 90% um, efficacy of the uh, mRNA vaccines that have been approved. So that's just something to keep in mind and that the purpose of this is to prevent COVID-19 and that you are not being given uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus with vaccination um, for any of the products that are currently available for emergency use. And the next thing to really look into is just one thing that's going around is like, hey, if I've had COVID already, then I don't need vac need to be vaccinated because um, I already have antibodies. And um, while it is true, right, that there are a number of individuals having had that prior infection, they do develop an immune response that leads to antibody formation. And they are to a degree protected uh, from a subsequent or repeat infection with COVID. 
um, definitely good news. But one thing that has been demonstrated again and again is that the immune boost, the immune response that is generated from vaccination um, is actually significantly greater than what we call a native immune response or native infection uh, leading to that immune response. And this, too, is something that has been studied. Um, This was another New England Journal of Medicine article that looked at antibody responses in individuals that were seropositive. So meaning they had evidence of a prior uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection right, with antibodies. And they looked at how these individuals responded to a single dose of the SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine. And it actually showed that individuals having had that previous infection, right, not only did they have a boosted immune response, but it was as good or greater to to individuals that um, were not previously infected with SARS-CoV-2. Right. So this was sort of like an extra boost for those individuals that had COVID-19 prior and had antibodies. It was like they just got a a significant boost just off of one vaccine administration, um, one dose. And so they saw a boost to that already native immunity that they had from a previous infection. And so with that said, even if you've had COVID, even if you have antibodies, you can still benefit from uh, being vaccinated. And another major question that has been coming up is right whether or not this is safe for pregnant women or women that are planning on becoming pregnant and having children. And I just want to go and bring some attention to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists um, in in a practice advisory issued in December of 2020 and last updated actually this March, um, basically they say that the Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccine, Moderna, and the Janssen Bio- Biotech um, Incorporated or the Johnson and Johnson vaccines vaccines are safe for administration to women of childbearing age that intend on becoming pregnant. Also, that it is safe for women that are currently pregnant, right? Um, The ACOG or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that COVID-19 vaccines should not be withheld from pregnant individuals and the vaccine should be offered to lactating individuals similar to non-lactating individuals. So whether you're breastfeeding or not, whether you are childbearing age and intending on having children or not, or if you're currently pregnant, you should consider and it's safe to consider it and be vaccinated. And sort of the last myth that I really want to uh, address here and right now, and we've talked about this before on Health in Harlem, is that this is a crisis that will not just be ended with vaccines only, meaning all of those other measures, those public health measures, the social distancing, wearing masks, um, appropriate restrictions on large gatherings. Um, And even if there are no restrictions on large gatherings, really just being cognizant as individuals and being patient and not, um, you know, engaging in large gatherings and really just these precautions that we've been talking about for the last 14 months, just continuing to abide by that and to buy us more time to really 
get to those levels of vaccination that could lead to something like herd immunity and therefore get us back to some sense of normalcy. That's what really has to happen, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a silver bullet when it comes to vaccines, but it is an important piece in the puzzle. And that other important piece is really just our behavior as individuals, as communities um, in abiding by those uh, regulations and recommendations. So we have to continue to social distance, continue wearing the masks. And really, as we begin to as we consider uh, vaccination, just really make sure that we are making decisions based on real information, um, as there is a lot of false uh, and misinformation out there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for allowing me to be a talking head. <laughs> um, you know, definitely always willing to share this information with you. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for listening to Health in Harlem. And really, at uh, any chance you get, the only thing we ask is just to share the information. Um, whatever you learned on this program, just share it with anybody that will listen. That's really all we ask. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. And this is Maurice Selby and Zora Linnell. <laughs> Selby for the first time actually signing off with me. She's right here with me. Um, and that's that's the reason I got vaccinated, ladies and gentlemen, is for um, not just for myself, but for my family. And so uh, with that said, we just want to say Harlem, take care of yourself. Thank you.